Hi, I'm Tim Rood, Head of Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest episode of On the Hill. Today, I've got the privilege to speak with my old friend and the Senior Vice President of Residential Policy and Member Engagement at the Mortgage Bankers Association, Pete Mills. Hey, Tim, how are you? I'm great, Pete. Thanks so much for doing this. Happy to do it. Hi, Pete. So I'm going to give you the folks, the, the Reader's Digest version of your background here. So uh, roughly since 2012, you've headed up the Mortgage Bankers Association's Residential Public Policy Group, which includes overseeing member engagement for key segments of the MBA membership. Those include independent mortgage bankers, community banks and credit unions, warehouse lenders. Your team also handles the association's state and local government affairs function. And as we all know, the MBA is the leading voice for real estate finance. So a little before that, though, Pete started his career at the Federal Reserve, which I did not know. You also worked at the Money Store and at Countrywide. Uh, Pete's a Bay Area, that's San Francisco Bay Area local. Grew up rooting for the 49ers, the Giants, and the Warriors. Obviously, a, a bit of a sports buff. <laughs> Just a touch. Just a touch. All right, Pete. Well, thanks so much for doing that. So we're talking today about the mortgage industry in the context of how DC works, how they administer policies, and we wanted to help listeners better, really better navigate the whole ecosystem to influence policies and, of course, implement these policies in the most defensible way, um, obviously in this reinvigorated enforcement regime. That's literally where the rubber meets the road and what matters. So uh, the question to you, Pete, would be, the, you know, the government usually steps in into the mortgage market, that is when they believe the private sector really isn't doing something that the government wants them to do, or that the private sector is doing something destructive, real or perceived, to markets or people, you know, things like redlining, steering, overcharging, you name it. So my first question is, how did we end up with such a complex housing finance ecosystem that includes so many different agencies, policymakers, layers of supervisory and enforcement agencies, all ultimately influencing the housing and finance markets agenda? Yeah, it's a great question, Tim. I think you answered part of it in the question itself, which is, you know, a lot of the regulatory infrastructure that we have is born out of crises. And sometimes they're, you know, large financial crises. Sometimes it's a specific response to a policy problem that's become acute. And on occasion, it's sometimes the industry itself doing its own advocacy, you know, maybe to control things that uh, even industry itself is struggling with. But I mean, if you look back at everything we have in our regulatory architecture, a lot of it comes out of the Great Depression. So think about FHA, home loan bank system, the initial creation of Fannie Mae, then sort of have some acute problems uh, and some of the great society programs, which are more targeted, not necessarily in response to a financial crisis, but dealing with specific issues. And out of that, you get HUD, you get Ginny, and you get the private version of Fannie. And not to be outdone, when Fannie was created, the SNL industry wanted its own version of Fannie. So you had Freddie created out of that. And more recently, uh, coming out of the great financial crisis, you get the CFPB, you get uh, FSOC, which is really sort of top of the house systemic risk for the entire economy, Office of Financial Research and other sort of pieces, all of which impact our housing finance space in, in significant ways. I agree. And I was thinking about it along a similar line, whereas, you know, you're looking at how housing has long been a tool of lawmakers to 
to kind of manage social and economic challenges in the country. As you mentioned, the Home Loan Bank and FHA created in response to the of the Great Depression. And I was really the federal government's first move into it, right? Mortgages were all made by banks and insurance companies, but with defaults around, I guess it was 25% in the yep. early 30s, the idea of government insurance and government liquidity and longer term mortgages really served as that tourniquet for a hemorrhaging mortgage market. Yeah, I mean, you had you had a private MI industry in the 20s, but it failed going into the Great Depression and they had to create something else. And, and that's how we ended up with FHA. And now we have both. We have FHA, we have a, a robust private MI industry as well. I was just thinking about this because I haven't thought about this in years. So during, I, I guess it was probably probably during the Obama administration, you know, we were talking in jest you know, internally. It's like, man, why the heck can't we get like, like a housing czar, right? Something that that if you can have one person like the, the defense secretary in charge of the entire United States armed forces, army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and all that, then surely we can create a similar role for housing finance where someone kind of rides over all of these different agencies and enterprises just to kind of have some commonality, eliminate some of the redundancies, build some efficiencies, just take some of the red tape and bureaucracy out of it and make it a little bit more balanced and um, less ambiguous. Yeah, you know, that's a challenge. Uh, I think it's a great concept in theory. In practice, it becomes hard because each agency has its own turf that it sort of jealously guards. I do think you have, you know, the National Economic Council, for example, is supposed to be the coordinating body. And depending upon whether they have their focus on housing, they can be a real force for bringing that cross-agency coordination that's oftentimes needed. But they're also dealing with everything else that might be happening at the same time. So housing may not be their focus at any point in time. But I'll tell you, you know, even going back to the Obama administration, NEC played a, a very important role in at least bringing the parties together when there was conversations about the lack of certainty about risk transfer. When you sell a loan to Fannie or Freddie, we were dealing with all the buybacks. We were dealing with the False Claims Act. And NEC was a very important convener to bring all the parties together, including industry, to say, you got to fix this. And it took a while, but there were significant reforms to the GSC rep and warrant frameworks that I thought was really important. Um, we're just now, I mean, it took two administrations to finish the work on addressing some of the False Claims Act risk and try to bring clarity to that whole process. So NEC can be a really good force. Um, like I said, if there's other things going on that are bigger and more uh, capturing their attention, it may be hard to, to get on the radar screen. So there isn't a housing czar, so to speak, but you can leverage existing apparatus at times to, to, to be that force. That's a good point. I mean, we had Jim Parrott on the podcast some months back, and that was really the role he played at the yep. National Economic Council during Obama. And, and I think you're right. He would really describe that as a role of kind of adjudicating issues or disagreements between different federal agencies, quasi or not, and being kind of the adult in the room to make sure that these things are all subscribing to and reflecting the priorities and goals of the administration. So I think that's that's a definitely as close as we can get so far to a housing czar, if you will. Yeah, I think so. And again, I think the best you can expect out of anybody in that kind of a role is a coordinator. With all those agencies that we've already talked about, they each have 
roles and responsibilities and jurisdictions that they're going to guard, but at least get them pulling in the same direction. Right. Well, back to the point. I mean, if we're looking back to the government's role in this and how it uses housing and housing finance as a means for solving any number of social and economic imbalances, and it's happened time and time again, from back to your point, the Great Depression, and then the the Fair Housing Act, which really came out of the civil rights movement, same sort of thing. So my question, Pete, then is when you're speaking to your members about housing policies, how do you think about them in the context of those larger macroeconomic macro trends? It doesn't have to be economic, it could be social trends, economic trends. And you know, it gets back to, as we talk about in this field guide, which I'll discuss in a minute, teaching people when they come to Washington to speak in the DC dialect, right? Without accent and to make sure that they're thinking and talking about real people in real places, as opposed to their own self-interest or agenda. Yeah, that's a great question. We could probably spend an hour just talking about that. I, I think it's especially important if you're in the housing space to focus on the macro trends. I mean, if you think about it, housing is what, 16 to 18% of GDP, so it's a critical driver for the broader economy. It's you know this extraordinarily important part of our social fabric. It's the American dream. It's the primary source of household wealth, or more as we're talking even today, more about generational wealth. Few industries score that high on both sort of economic and social importance and impact. So you do have to understand the macro environment you're in. But you know where it gets complicated is our issues can sometimes be very complex and narrow and small sometimes. And I'm thinking of issues related to mortgage servicing rights, for example, or even just mortgage servicing generally. It's an area that people don't fully understand. And very few policymakers are going to be able to wrap their heads around the complexities of your business. But if you can tie your issues to the broader macro trends, I think you can get policymakers to pay attention. I mean, I think this current administration has been actually incredibly good at this. They outlined four themes that, uh, you know, on January 20th, COVID is a national health emergency, COVID is an economic threat, climate change as an existential threat, and, you know, racial equity and inclusion as this moral imperative. Every initiative you see that comes out of the agencies ties into one or more of those four pillars. And so as we look at our narrower issues, to the extent that you can hook your issue to one or more of those themes, you're able to get attention. So that's kind of how I think that wh- why that macro trend, understanding what the environment you're operating in is, is all about is, is really important. Yeah, it gets back to some of the messaging that we've talked about, which is when you get the right audience, and that's a difficult <laughs> thing to achieve when you, if you think you have the right audience, you probably don't, but you need to make sure that you're talking, you're talking to these people who are going to be bored, distracted, self-important, and you obviously need to break through in a way that makes them think, well, you know, I get it, or tell me more. And yeah. it's often not quite as easy as it sounds. And it, when you tie it back to those broader yeah. policy themes, it helps. How does it tie into something that I'm, I'm working on every single day? And the, the last thing, and I'll close out on that, is those, those macro trends that you're, you're hinging these conversations or recommendations to, they change. And they changed pretty radically. I mean, I was thinking about it like housing pre-great financial crisis. It, it was a huge push, just like this, right? Yep, um, yep. It's a wealth creation opportunity. We had homeownership rates around 67%. And then post-financial crisis, nobody even utters those words. If they did, they were talking about wealth destruction, not wealth creation. 
And he went to loss mitigation, consumer protections. So the narrative completely changed around those macro trends. Exactly. And then the pendulum has swung back in, in some respects, although you've got it in a, in a, much, a much different approach. Um, you know, if you go back to the early 2000s, it was, there's a lot of encouragement of, of subprime lending back then. It went too far. I, I do think for all of our frustrations with aspects of Dodd-Frank, I, I do think today's market is significantly more stable and there have been some significant positive outcomes from some of that legislation. Yeah, I totally agree. So kind of picking up on that theme, in this field guide that we recently published, and it's it's on surviving and thriving in this ecosystem that is DC, but in the context, again, of housing and housing finance-related activities, just to kind of narrow the aperture. You know, we talk about the pilgrimage that companies make to DC, particularly in a new administration like this, where Biden's just getting his team on the field. They come, they want to build relationships with policymakers and lawmakers. They want to better understand the policies and the context of the policies. They want to improve policies wherever they can. As I mentioned, they ultimately want to implement these things in the most defensible way possible. However, when it comes to modifying these policies, corporate executives, I think, in my experience, often don't understand who their true audience is to our earlier part of our conversation. For example, if you had an executive that had a great idea about how a policy change could save, let's just say, FHA lots of money and improve the quality of the loans it insures as a good kind of jumping off point, even if FHA agrees with them and flashes nothing but buy signals, it may ultimately be at odds with guidance from the OMB or the White House, or to your point, the National Economic Council as an extension of the White House. So the executive leaves the meeting, we've all seen this, totally optimistic, not knowing that the decision about whether to adopt the policy change is really being made by another agency, but they leave thinking they made a great pitch, close the sale, celebrate, and so on. So- Why do you think it's so difficult to identify who your true audience really is and needs to be on any of these issues at any given time? I think the problem is there isn't, rarely is there just one audience. You have a multiplicity of audiences on almost every issue. And, you know, again, depending on whether it's legislative or regulatory, you know, you have partisan differences in how they look at an issue. It may not even be that they're on different sides of the issue, but you Talk, you need to talk about it differently. What resonates with a uh, Democratic office is not going to necessarily resonate with a Republican office. Regulators and legislators often have very different perspectives. And what speaks to a member of Congress isn't necessarily going to resonate with somebody who's a career staffer at an agency in charge of the particular issue you're working on. So you really do have to think about how you talk about the issue with all of the various audiences. And speak to them and, and their concerns and their constituencies. Um, you've got third parties, you've got other groups that whatever you're deciding to do, whatever your policy is that you're pursuing is gonna impact other groups, other industries, consumer groups, et cetera. So there's all these different audiences. And I'm not suggesting you're saying different things to different people. I'm just saying you focus on different elements of your policy targeted to the, the person you're talking to. That doesn't really work unless you really start at the core of it all with good public policy. If you have good policy, you can craft messages that speak to each of those audiences, but remains true to the policy. So I guess, you know, success, I think, really starts with finding a good policy solution 
that addresses your issue, but also legitimately speaks to the concerns of your of your other audiences. And that's not to say that sometimes bad policy and good messaging can win. Sometimes that does happen, but you know that's not really where you want to be as an advocate. And quite often those issues get revisited a short time later because they prove not to be particularly good ideas. But I mean, I really do have to think about all the various audiences. And then the other issue you touched on is, okay, who do you go talk to? Regulators, legislators, those are the easy ones. But there are times where you're talking to a regulator, but if you can get uh, what we call air cover, if you will, mm-hmm. from, from the Hill on your issue, regulators also listen to legislators uh, who might hold the purse strings for their agency. So figuring out all the different audiences you need to talk to. So you got the Hill, you've got your regulators, you've got all the other bodies we've talked about. The NEC uh, is, is an important one. GAO is an important one. So if you're working on an issue, you want to get a GAO study that analyzes the issue you're working on that might support your position. Quite often, you can get a member of Congress to request a, a GAO look, look into an issue. You got to wait around for a while, and then that report comes out, and it might support the case you're trying to make. So there's just a lot of different moving parts. Not all of them move on every issue, but you do have to kind of figure out where all your all your various constituencies are uh, in the federal regulatory framework. I agree. We actually covered some of that in the field guide is you have to basically understand, of course, who your audience ultimately serves, what their agenda is, who are their constituents, who are their donors, contributors, whatever. Look at what they voted on, what they voted against. Look at topics that they address, ones that they stay away from. So you have to be really sensitive to those things, but that becomes an an exhausting tactic. And why we talk about Commercial success in DC requires almost a metaphysical change in your perception of patience. Yeah. And like the example that I used before with FHA, that patience is so critical. And it's something that you need to remember that you need to have when things seem to be going really well. Like, oh my God, super, super meeting. This thing is going to move. No doubt about it. Well, that tends to be um, a bit of a, a red herring and a long-term disappointment if you're not covering across those other groups or people that are required to make that decision. Yeah, you know, your, your field guide does a good job of that. I think in particular, looking at, you don't want to go make an argument or, or make an ask of, of an agency or a bureau or uh, an office within the administration that they aren't empowered to do. You want to tailor your ask to what they are able to do. So you can't ask an agency to do something that isn't within its power to do. But you might be able to go to CBO or you could go to OMB and, and ask them to take a look at an issue. But knowing what their role is, is, is important. You want to make the ask tailored to what they are able to help you with. And public policy generally follows public opinion, right? So you know, you can stimulate some of that public opinion or urgency through a number of ways. But I remember during all of the time of um, the GSE reform stuff is that that was, I think, one of the missing linchpin to make that really catch fire and to have meaningful progress on that, despite a lot of effort by a lot of smart people to do GSE reform is, you know, you, you didn't really see Wells Fargo executives or Joe Lunchbucket out in front of the White House picketing for reform. Credit was available. Credit was cheap. It was in every market. And then when you start picking at it, you found the handful of people who even knew what the heck a GSE was, and you asked them if they wanted to reform them. This is a hypothetical, of course, and they would say, absolutely. Those are bad guys. Uh, They're worse than the Wall Street. 
types because they perverted a government subsidy and they lined your own pockets with it. And I'm dramatizing, of course. Right. right. And you say, okay, good. Well, let me take you through how we're going to spend your $250 a month. And don't think that that lost equity, that five or 10% of lost equity in your house isn't going for a good cause, Pete. Damn it. This is shared sacrifice. We're all in this together. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what are we talking about? And that's where it, I, my experience, it had a tendency to unravel. Once you unpacked it to that level, it's like, ugh, status quo, do no harm sort of thing. Yeah. And that's part of the challenge. We talked at the top of the call around uh, a lot of big stuff gets done around a crisis, whether it's a macro crisis or an acute problem that needs fixing. It's very hard to get things done if you can't make the case that there's a, either a crisis in the offing or you're in the middle of a crisis. You need that spark sometimes, and it can be very difficult to do big things without that spark. Right. And that spark can come from, I mean, this ties into that uh, strength in numbers sort of uh, thing that you were kind of describing and that we covered in that field guide. How do you get like-minded groups to create sort of an echo chamber, or at least kick off the topic that you want to policymakers to address, kick it off from a stakeholder or a credible third party, Brookings, Pew, think tanks that like New York Times, whatever it might be, because it obviously increases the chances of success when you can get that sort of echo chamber going. So I know you agree with that, that aphorism, that strength in numbers. So how do you approach building those sorts of coalitions? Maybe not just from the MBA side, because if it's relevant, but I'm thinking about people like they've got a mortgage company, they've got an agenda, they're looking at how they can build out a coalition, an alliance of like-minded people for that sort of greatest effect. Like how, how would you recommend, even give me a hypothetical? You know, again, it, it, starts, it always starts with, with good policy, I think. And if you can identify what it is you're trying to fix and you, and you have a solution in mind that you think works, you're going to have to kind of walk that forward a little bit. So trade associations are a great tool to begin to build that echo chamber, if you will. So, you know, figure out which trades uh, you're a member of, which ones are likely to support your issue, that, that they're going to care about it. And then you kind of have to do the sort of center out who are going to be your allies, what other industries are affected by your issue, try to pull them in. Who's your opposition? Obviously, you want to understand why they're going to be opposed. And there'd be a lot of fence sitters. And if you can drag some of the fence sitters over to your side of the equation, you begin to build that echo chamber as well. And then that's sort of on the, on the industry side of things. You know, we talked earlier about, you know, Congress is a megaphone for a regulatory issue. So as you're thinking about getting a regulatory change, can you get members of Congress on the committees of jurisdiction to understand and maybe weigh in, fire off a letter to the agency head, for example, that begins to bring more voices to the issue you're trying to get addressed and fixed. Talked about GAO, NEC. So you just kind of, it's sort of this center out process starting with your core issue, starting with your natural allies, out to you know the sort of what I call the fence sitters, uh, figure out who your opposition is and how you can maybe mitigate some of their concerns by tweaking your policy a little bit. Again, trying to not only build the echo chamber, but also maybe break down some of the resistance that might exist out there. You know, On a big issue, it's, it gets pretty complex. On smaller issues, sometimes it's not quite as hard. The challenge, particularly if it's legislative, is finding the vehicle to, to stick it on. Unlike state legislatures, Congress tends to pass large, comprehensive bills that you, know, you got to find that moving train to hook your issue to. Or somebody told me um, a long time ago that the only time that Washington 
uh, ever passes legislation is, of course, when there's urgency or when the problem is so far in the rearview mirror that it really doesn't matter. <laughs> Just go ahead right. and, and pass it. <laughs> right. Well, closing the barn doors. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. I don't think we touched on it, but, you know, if you were just doing a, a postmortem and then forecasting forward what's to come, I mean, there's always some sort of a correction in these markets. And let's just take it over the last 40 years or something like that. You have the, the SNL crisis. This is in the housing and mortgage context, of course. That was a crisis, no doubt about it. RTC and all that horrible, uh, fun stuff that was contained, not relatively expensive in the, in the scheme of how we think about dollars and cents and crises now. It didn't cause a global crisis. How about that, right? It was, it was fairly contained here. Then you've got things like the great financial crisis, which really was the first housing crisis that was securitization driven, right? The industry moved from originate and hold to originate and sell, call it the bigger idiot theory or whatever you want to call it. Those were built as the securities were packaged and built as more safe, diversified, yada, yada. Well, that was when the government was probably what, 45% of the market, I think coming into 2006. So it was a very different market than today where you've got roughly 95% of originations are government backed. You've got you know six times median income is what the median home price is versus normal times two three times median income. So I'm trying to play this out. Like, and I, I'm always drawn to the horrible parallel of the government takeover and nationalization of student lending, right? I mean, are we, could we find ourselves going down a path where any person could get a loan for any school, play that out to any borrower buying virtually any property within some reason, and the moral hazard associated with it that um, if you ask student lenders, people who have student loans, about 50% of them say that they're never going to pay it back because eventually the government's just going to forgive it. Default rates go up. The amount of loans go through the roof. The cost of tuition goes up. I mean, I, I draw those parallels and I start thinking that it could never happen. But then you look at foreclosure moratoriums, forbearances. You know, you're kind of vertically integrating housing and mortgage finance. So I don't want to project that on you any further, but as you see this, how do you see this potentially ending if it ends in some sort of a correction, or do you see a different outcome that this just rides off into the sunset and just moderates and everything just goes perfectly well? Well, I mean, if you define a correction as a normalization of uh, the current trend of excessive home price appreciation, I think that's what we all are hoping for. I do think this is very different from the mid-2000s in terms of the drivers of the price appreciation and the risk of a, of a sharp correction or a downturn or a housing-driven downturn. You know, so much of what we're looking at today is supply-demand imbalance and not credit standards loosening to the point where you have widespread people buying houses that they knew they couldn't afford from day one. I think we need to be careful. I think you know, a lot of our affordability discussions today still tend to be demand-side focused. I think we all, I know the mortgage bankers supports the concept of targeted down payment grant assistance for first-time, first-generation homebuyers. I wish we could deal with the supply issue first. We don't always have the luxury of 
uh, being able to sequence the things that Congress does hard enough to get them to, to you know, focus on the things we want them to do. Sequencing those things is challenging. It would be better if we could focus on supply first. But uh, if we don't resolve the supply issues, we've gone more than a decade of underproducing housing. We're going to have to deal with that if, if, if we want to avoid you know, perhaps a sharper correction. Of, of it just get to a point where people can't afford to buy. If we don't solve the supply problem, we'll hit the wall at some point. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the reality to your point is if you're if you've been underbuilding for 10 years, and you know, the last 10 years certainly have not been the historically high in terms of household uh, formation rates, just because you're coming out of a recession, you had a lot of the millennials living with their parents, yada yada. So even in those circumstances, we were way behind. I think it's what two two million units behind, essentially population growth or household formations. Well, if millennials were forming households at the same rate as say Gen X or or the Boomer generation, you know, you'd have another six million households that um, you know needed to find a place to live or that needed shelter. And they're gonna. It, it's you know, it's just delayed, right? It'll it'll come back online. Those those households will be created in the years to come, and you're going to have a huge dearth. So I, I couldn't agree more on the zoning side, and you want to avoid a lot of the things that you're doing that are being proposed to remove some of the economic barriers to home ownership. Don't turn into subsidies for sellers versus subsidies for buyers. Right, right. You know, I just go back I, when I worked at the Fed in the early '80s as a research assistant who, you know, would track all the data and make the charts for the economists and everything. This is so 83 to 85. Housing starts, we get the number every month. And if they were over a million on the single family housing start side, things were good. If they were under a million, so that was sort of the, that was the line. We went 30 years later, 35 years later, we went a long time without ever crossing over the million starts. We only just crossed over in the last, I think maybe 12 to 18 months. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's a huge, it's a huge challenge. And, and to your point about zoning and yeah, a lot of it needs to be solved at the local level. There's not a whole lot that the federal government can do there. Yeah, it's a, it's a big topic, but I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's certainly nuanced and there are some levers that the federal government can throw but at the end of the day, uh, these are going to be made largely by local officials, local participants, uh, leaders in the community and things like that. And it's hard just to get an alignment of interests. Yep. Yeah, um, I, I agree that there are things the federal government can do, but they're going to be around the edges. The real change is going to have to come from state and local housing policy. Yeah. Plenty more to come there. Well, I do appreciate you spending the time, Pete. I, I can tell you, and I think you know as well. And why I like doing these things is that I don't really think there was a point in time, at least not in my adult life, where these these topics and anything to do with DC regulations, politics, policymaking have been more interesting or more relevant to more people. And the fact that our industry is right in the middle of it does make my hair tingle a bit and I'm having a lot of fun doing it. So thanks for doing this. I do appreciate it. And also during the pandemic, I have to thank you for all of the fabulous recommendations that you gave me for a variety of TV series. I thought like <laughs> we were like, like 1950s housewives kind of exchanging uh, recipes. So that was fabulous. Um, I appreciate that uh, almost as much as your time here today. So thanks a lot, buddy.
right. Thanks, Tim. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.